0: You are now listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ, in addition to your local church. Amen. Well, you guys can be seated. Can we give these guys a round of applause for uh, leading us? Um, And I just love how uh, they focus my attention and stir my affections for the Lord. And I hope that they've done the same for you, and that you're in a place uh, today where you're ready to receive um, God's word, and, and that's that's a place, special place to be in, where you're you're ready to hear from God, you're ready to receive. Uh, what he has to say, um, and, uh, and so in order to kind of just give, uh, maybe give some um, attention to that for just a second to kind of just begin to stir your affections prior to us getting into our actual text, if you have your Bible, I hope you do, turn, turn to the book of Psalms with me for a second, Psalm chapter 4. Um, this is kind of just uh, personal in the sense of I uh, felt like the Lord wanted me uh, to, to say this, um, we're going through the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke in just a second. Um, but I'm reading personally through the book of Psalms. The Lord just convicted me a few days ago, and I, and I would just encourage you, maybe maybe a, a week or two ago, um, and moved me into a place of just kind of walking through the Psalms and my daily reading, um, which, by the way, um, man, the Lord so much so wants to stir your affections for Him through uh, daily reading of His Word and being satisfied in, in, uh, in Him. Um, if you would be consistent day in, day out, out and really try to set a pattern of spending time in God's word and hearing from him and receiving from him and and sitting in his word, I'm telling you, your heart would change. You would be satisfied in the Lord. And your lives would change. And so I'm just, well, I just want to encourage you to do that. Try to set a pattern of daily Bible reading. Um, and so I'm in the Psalms right now, and I've been reading Psalms for like uh, days at a time. So I'll take, I took Psalm 1, was there for just, I don't know, maybe even four or five days. Psalm 2, same thing. The Lord's just ministering to my soul during this time. Um, but Psalm 4 um, uh, spoke uh, uh, spoke very clearly to me, and, and I was just I've just been in it for a little while. And um, <clears throat> here's what it says. I want you to look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. There are many who say, who will show us some good? A- and this is what the, the, the call or the cry is. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And you know, that's what I want to happen today. That's what I want to happen in your life. That's what I want to happen in our church. That the Lord would lift up his countenance, lift up the light of his face to shine upon us. God's blessing, God's favor, God's nearness, God's light, God's comfort, that he would come to us and his, the, he, his, the light of his face would shine upon us, upon his people. That's what I want to happen today. In verse 7, he goes on and says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And I love that, because as the Lord shines his face upon his people, there is an exceeding joy that occurs that is beyond even when the world's wine and the world's grain abounds. Like, you got all the wine, you got all the grain, and I got the Lord, and my joy is exceeding your joy. And so that's what I want to happen today, is that the Lord would shine his face upon you, he'd shine his face upon our church, and that our joy would be exceeding, not because our grain and our wine abound, but because we have the Lord. And He's greater than anything we could ever possess. And we're going to see just a picture today of, of humility in the Savior. And, and I just wanted to satisfy us, I wanted to instruct us, I wanted to help us. But let's pray. Let's ask that the Lord would do this, that He would shine His face upon us, and that He would put more joy in our heart then even if our vats are full and our wine abounds and our grain abounds, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength, as Nehemiah says. Let's pray and ask him to do that today. Ask him to do it in your life. You need to pray for yourself. Pray, God, satisfy me in you. Satisfy me in your love. Shine your face upon me today. Speak to me that I would receive your word. Let's pray, and I want you to personally ask the Lord to do that. I'll I'll pray for us. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we just... We beg you to do this work. God, we want the light of your face to shine upon us as the sun spreads over the whole earth and as the sun covers the land and warms it and brings joy to all those in whom the sun and its rays touch. So, Lord, we want you to come and shine upon us that you would lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord, that your face would shine on our lives, that we would experience because of your nearness and your presence more joy than even if our wine and our grain abounded. That would be nothing in comparison to having you, our Savior. Lord, as we look at a picture of you today, I pray that as 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 this picture unfolds, that we would be mesmerized and captivated by how great of a Savior you are, that you came in human flesh to die on our behalf, that you lived perfectly, that you showed an example, and that you served, even though you could have easily demanded to be served. God, we love you. Jesus, you are so good and sweet to us. I pray that you'd bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and I will warn you, um, stay there, because when I tell you like this thing is full, I mean this thing is full, like it's packed. And if you come here regularly, um, you know, and if you don't uh, come here regularly, if this is your first time, I wanna welcome you. We are so glad that you're here, and I hope you continue on this journey with us as you walk in your faith. But one thing that we will do is we're gonna really just look at what the text is teaching us. So we're gonna look at what the Bible is actually saying because that's the most important thing. That's what God wants us to do, wants us to see his words to us and understand them. So we're gonna sit in this and it's like really packed, okay? And then from there we can understand how to rightly live and apply it. But that's always secondary, okay? It's always secondary to seeing God and understanding his word and what he has for us. So we're going to look at this text together, and what we're going to see in this text is wonderful. We're going to see Jesus in his boyhood, um, and uh, and we're going to get a a glimpse and an insight into into his life, um, which is incredible. I want to read the passage first uh, before we even introduce it so you become familiar with what we're even talking about today. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39, and we're going to read to verse 52, okay? Here we go. Read with us. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances... and in favor with God and man. What an incredible passage. One of the greatest passages, I think, in all the Bible. And again, it's full. So what are we seeing in this passage? What's the the theme here? And and we're going to see how this is very relevant to our lives. Well, what we see here is the humble preparation of the Savior in childhood. This is the humble preparation of the Savior in childhood. Childhood. So throughout this book, throughout the book of Luke, what we've been seeing is a theme. The theme is Jesus' humanity. Okay, we're seeing that Jesus is human. He's the son of man, right? In various gospels, we see different forms of what the emphasis is on Jesus. In the book of Matthew, we see the emphasis on his, his Jewish uh, descent and fulfillment of, of all the prophecies written to specifically to, to Jews. In the book of John, we see his divinity, right? In the beginning of John, what do we see? In the beginning, was the? Word, word and the word. Was God and the word was? So we know and we see this divine Jesus who always existed and yet he was coming to earth. In the book of Mark, what we see is a lot of his action, okay? Mark is going to turn really, really quick, okay? You're just going to see like action after action after action after action, proving by his works who he is and what he's done. We're going to see a lot of those here in the book of Luke. The emphasis is on Jesus' humanity, which is so important. Because Jesus had to become human in order to do what? Die, right? Humans die. Jesus had to become fully human to die for our sins. And so the fact that Jesus became human is vitally important. And so within this, what we've been seeing so far is this unique contrast. The contrast that we've been seeing is that here's this God who comes to earth and nothing looks like it's supposed to look. Right. He's like born in a manger. He's running and hiding from people who are going to hurt him. And um, what we see is that this this whole thing is like, okay, is this really like the son of God, the one who was supposed to come, the Messiah, the coming king? And yet the testimony shows us right through the lineage of David, the fulfillment of Abraham, the angels singing in heaven. This is him. It just doesn't look how we like we thought it would look. But the emphasis is his humanity because his humanity shows his servanthood, his love, and his um, uh, pursuit to die on our behalf for our sins. And so within all of this, you would expect that we see his human side. And we see submission. We see growth. We see a recognition of him and his father. We're going to see that in his time here, we're gonna see that he's truly human. And so in this specific passage, it is really, truly emphasized. We see Jesus in this humanity, in, in this human form, really uh, taking on this, this time as bo- as a boy to, to really grow and to learn and to follow his father. Now, this is interesting it, it just just because of the nature of the time period. I mean, like, I think about my kids, right? And I'm like, man, like, this season is very, very difficult. Like someone was telling me, I, I, I was talking to someone yesterday, and, and they were telling me, uh, I think it was actually Nick. Nick, we were sitting at the pool, and Nick's like, "Yeah, this is the roughest season with kids." I'm like, "You are right, right?" My kids, just the age gap, it's like it's crazy. Because like one day my kids are like, "Man, they're doing awesome." I'm like, "Man, they're obedient. They're getting this thing. I mean, they're gonna follow Jesus. They're gonna be like, I mean, they're gonna set like exi- they're gonna be awesome, you know?" And then like they wake up from nap time, and I'm like. Every, this is horrible. Like, my kids don't get it, right? What am I doing wrong as a parent? I got to fix something. I mean, I'm picturing, you know, 21 years old, them going off and never li- talking to me ever again. This is awful, right? They didn't put away their laundry or something, you know? And so, and, and so just the nature of that season is interesting. And, and you would think in this time period of Jesus, in his boyhood, that you would see this, these patterns of this. But you don't. Jesus is perfect even in his time of adolescence. Now, the only picture that we get of it is this passage. That's it. We get this one particular passage that summarizes for us that even in his boyhood, Jesus was submissive, why? Because we truly see that he's the son of man. Yes, in salvation history, Jesus is coming to earth and he's gonna save the world through dying on our behalf, but the way in which he does it is humble. The way in which the word spreads throughout the world is through servants and through suffering and through submission. And Jesus, in his boyhood, shows us his humanity, his submissiveness, his growth. And yet there's a stark contrast in the idea that he is truly God. He's truly God. And he truly created everything. And he will rise again. And he will ascend, and he will reign forever. And yet with all that in light, he submits like a human. Now this is very applicable and relevant to us. And we're going to see, because I think we as Christians should think in the same way. And should imitate Jesus in this way, and should expect the same. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're a child of God. You've been approved by God. You have his favor Upon you. You will reign one day forever into eternity with the King of the world. Everything that Jesus inherits, you inherit. And what does Jesus inherit? Everything. You will sit at table and Jesus will serve you, you will see him in his glory for all time. You have a relationship with the God of the universe. You can talk to him at any time. He answers your prayers. He's with you constantly, and nothing can separate you from his love. And one day, even though now you're merely justified, one day you will be glorified and be with him forever. And yet, even in all of that glory, now as Christians, we serve we submit we're humble we suffer we're least of these in the eyes of the world and so i want you to see this stark contrast just as jesus in all of his glory we see his humanity his humility his suffering you too christian in all of your glory of knowing the god of the universe will right now be called to serve and to submit and to be humble for the rest of your life. And I think we can understand how to do this and what kind of heart to have within this as we look at this passage. And so we wanna look at these contrasts. I'm gonna show you three sections where this contrast is very obvious. Okay? Of Jesus' um, glory and, and, and Him being God, and yet His humanity and His humility and His servanthood. We're going to see three sections that contrast this, and they're going to show us, I think, what our hearts and what our lives should be like, what should we expect as Christians. So the first section, and I'm going to walk through you and thro- through this with you, and I'm telling you, this is really packed, so you're going to have to follow along close with me. Okay, The first contrast that we see is this humble, and hidden and human man. He, this, this humility, this, this, this humility that Jesus takes on, this hiddenness that happens in the way in which he lives, and this humanness, he's fully human, and yet this unprecedented growth, this grace upon grace upon him, and the glory of truly who he is. It's this stark contrast, and it's happening here, and it's going to happen throughout all the passages. So we see this specifically in verses 39 through 40, and this is going to be the most chalk-filled with information that you're going to see from the text. So keep your eyes on the text. Everybody ready? Say ready if you're ready. Ready. All right, I don't believe you because we got a lot. Here we go. Just kidding. I believe you. Here we go, verse 39. Let's walk through these two verses, okay? Here's what we see. I want to explain what this Bible says. When they had performed, who's they? Mary and Joseph, right? When they had performed, what did they perform? Everything according to the law, the law of the Lord. Well, where do we see that occur? We see that occur, flip back in your, pe- in your chapter to verses 22 through 24. That's where we see Mary and Joseph fulfill everything according to the law. So after they had done that, and I'll flip back, after they had done this, um, they return to Galilee, to their own town of what? Nazareth. Okay, so stop right there. Right now is telling us the setting, this time frame, but it's telling us so much more. We're going to get to it. But before we, we understand that, what I want to point out to you is kind of really what's happening in the progression of this story. Okay, listen. So they return to Nazareth, okay? Now, what you see there is that you kind of you should ask yourself, okay, uh, how is this timeline going because there's something missing within story. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that there's something missing here. What's missing? What's missing in this time frame? Think about this for a second. What's missing in this place in history, in the time frame in which you see in other gospels? Because we know that this is around sometime when he's still a young child. And what the answer is, is I'll help you, okay? What we're missing is the wise men. We're missing Herod. We're missing the whole time frame in which that occurs. And yet, listen, what I want to tell you is that there's a progression that happens in this that's so important for us to see. I told you this is chalk packed. So what I want you to do is flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And what I want to show you is this progression of this timeline so we can understand how this is all working because I think it emphasizes Jesus' humility and his humanity and his and his, uh, and, and his his this in, in a way that's very, very special. So let me tell you about this timeline prior to us getting there. I want you to look at the screen and I want you to see Mark 1 9. In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by the Jordan, by John in the Jordan. Now, here's what I want you to understand, that what we know from this passage is that Jesus came directly out of Nazareth to start his ministry when he was baptized by who? John. So, what we know is that he lived in Nazareth growing up. Okay, so keep that in the back of your mind. This is going to be a lot. Keep that in the back of your mind. Jesus is growing up in Nazareth, so that's where he will end up. So now look at verse 39 and ask yourself, when they return to the town of Nazareth, is that the same situation? Is that the end all? He just returned to Nazareth after they fulfilled the law, and now he's sitting in Nazareth, living in Nazareth for the rest of his life until his ministry. Well, the answer is no, once again, because we know that there's some pieces that are missing here, right? And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2. So before we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23, which we're going to do, let me tell you how this progression worked, okay? So Jesus, before he was born, his parents, Mary and Joseph, are living in Nazareth, right? They travel down to where? Bethlehem to have the baby. But they went, obviously, for tax purposes, and that's where they had the baby. The prophecy showed us that that Jesus would come out of the city of who? David. So everything's working perfectly up until this point, right? They're there. They're in Bethlehem. They have this baby. Because of the, the, the closeness, the nearness, and because of the requirements of the law, they return from Bethlehem into, they go from Bethlehem into where? To, to, to the temple to fulfill the law. Jerusalem. Okay, good. You guys are doing great. So they're in Jerusalem. They're fulfilling the law. Now we get to Luke chapter 2, where after they were done fulfilling the law, they went to where? Nazareth, but that's not the end of the story. What we see here is they moved into Nazareth to get their stuff, basically. That's it. And then come back down to live in Bethlehem. That would be really fitting. Why? Because Jesus is the son of David right? This would be fitting for him to grow up in a place in which shows him to be what he really is, right? Near the temple and also in the town in which David was from. But as he goes into Bethlehem, what we see is there's some things that take place like the wise men and, and them going and Herod sending them. And then from there, Joseph has a dream, And the dream, in the dream, the angel of the Lord tells Joseph, you can't stay here in Bethlehem. You have to go. Where did he go? Anyone know? Egypt, Egypt, right? He flees to Egypt. That family flees to Egypt. And once they find out that Herod dies, then they're sent back to Judah, which Bethlehem is in Judah. So now they're going to stay there again, yet because of the ruler over Judah at the time, they leave again because it's not safe for them. And they ultimately return to Nazareth. And because of Mark 1:9, what we see is that they stayed in Nazareth permanently and lived there until he came out to John the Baptist to be baptized. Let's read Matthew chapter 2. I'm teaching you to read your Bible while at the same time explaining this to you, okay? Because you should ask yourself those questions. There's something missing here. So Matthew chapter 2, Verses 1 through 23. We're just going to read all of it. You ready? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, remember, he's already been born, fulfilled the law, gone up to Nazareth, got their stuff, came back down. Now they're here. This is where the wise men are coming in right? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, but you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. That was the prophecy. Then Herod, verse 7, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to where? Bethlehem. To go back. He's living there now, right? They're living there now. They're planning to live there now. Saying, go, search diligently for the Child. Now, I want you to take a second and I want you to see that this is going to be a word that's reiterated over and over again in this passage. Look at verse 8, what does it say again? This child. Look at verse 9, it says at the end of it, this child. Look at verse 11 and look in the middle of it, it says this child. Look at verse 13 and notice in the middle of it, it says this child. Notice again in verse 14 and look at that word, it says this child. Now. For a second, flip back to Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and what we see is that the child grew in wisdom. But at other times, Jesus has been called a baby, and in the next section of our passage in Luke chapter 2, Jesus will be called a boy, right? And now, again, he's being called a child or a little boy. And so what we see here is these clues about time frame. This is dead in the middle of this boyhood at 12 years old and this baby narrative that we've been in so far. So go back to Matthew chapter 2, and what we see is they've Gone to Bethlehem. They're looking for him in Bethlehem. What verse was I on? Anybody know? All right, eight. Here we go. He sent them to Bethlehem and saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. He was lying, wasn't he? And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Remember, they were in Bethlehem, but not, they're being warned because of, of Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord came to, to uh to warn Joseph now. And he warns Joseph in a dream and saying this, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until you, for Herod is about, until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. Um, by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the man, male children in Bethlehem in that region who were two years old or under. So, what we know is that this is a specific time in which Jesus is done with the ceremonial laws, and yet he's not into his boyhood, which we're going to see in the next section. He's two years old or under while all of this is happening, which helps us again, to place it smack dab in the middle of 39 and 40. According to that time, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, he was, then, what was, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that uh, that Archelaus, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of what? All right, now they're going back to live permanently in Nazareth. Verse 23, And he went and lived, circle that word lived, lived. And that's where he was going to stay, in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So now... What we see is how all of this storyline took place between verses 39 and verse 40, and he sits there, and then he moves into Nazareth permanently, and he will live there, and then look at verse 41, which we'll get to in the next section. His parents went to Jerusalem every year, traveling from Nazareth to Jerusalem to fulfill the requirements of the law and the Passover. So notice all of this. This is just happening. Like, if you look at this Bible, listen, there's a reason why God and inspired difficult text. There's a reason why there's so much more depth to the scripture than what you see on the surface. Why? Because God is unsearchable in his ways. The riches of God's ways are so deep and so beyond that you have to search deep and wide to uncover them. And there's a reason why you have to be dependent upon God to understand them, and so my encouragement to you is, is ask these questions from the text. Get help from others who can and help you, and spend time consistently in his word because this is just embedded in, we've only got through one verse right now. Now don't worry, we're gonna go faster, but that's all, right? And all of this brings about the meaning of the text. So now, verse 40, okay? Here we are in verse 40. And from this town of Nazareth, at the end of verse 39, which, by the way, let me show you this. Let me show you in John what it says about Nazareth. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because what was Nazareth like? Well, just so you know, real quick, Nazareth Nazareth was... small, so small that even some of the people now, like the historians who like have thought about, have like wondered, like did Nazareth even exist? Like, is that like a fictitious place? Because like it was so small and insignificant. It was so far from the Jewish epicenter and yet it was full of Jews that like these Jews were on the brink of being Gentiles, so to speak. And so, like, they're they're so far from the Jewish epicenter that they are almost considered Jewish. They're considered ignorant, people who are unaware of the law and not following true Jewish law, and yet also like sinners. Like there's a significance here that Jesus chose to go and be from and to live in the city of Nazareth. Which just, by the way, side note, keeps with our theme. Jesus in a man, if you look be in the past, David, who was the smallest of his brothers, Paul, who was a killer, Moses, who was afraid and had no skill, Abraham, who was old, and the disciples who were dumb. Like, God has always chosen to do things like this. And now Jesus, the king of the world, is growing up in Nazareth. The sticks. Excuse me if you're from the sticks. And now we see the contrast. Look at this contrast. Even though he's hidden, even though he's humble, even though we are watching this, we see this contrast, and yet we also see this human side of him. Verse 40, and the child grew, and he became strong, and he was full of wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, which by the way, jump down to verse 52, which is a similar, it's a little bit different, we're going to talk about what's different, but verse 52, look at this, and Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God, and with man, almost the same verse, they're sandwiching this passage, but what we see in this is kind of a, a stark contrast again, that he's human, because he's a child, and he's growing, and he's becoming strong, and he's increasing in wisdom, and he's growing in favor with God, and yet at the same time, He's always been God. And he's always had ultimate wisdom. And he's always been the strongest. And God's favor has always been upon him. And so we see this contrast that's happening, and it's a stark, stark contrast. Now this is, we're just moving out of the birth narratives into the boy narratives, and we're going to move completely into the adult narratives in our next time. And so this is really the only picture we get, and the contrast is staggering. What we see is this humble, he's humble, he's, a, he's a, a man, and he's growing, and he's from Nazareth. And he's this is why Matthew 2 is so important. He's running from people who will hurt him. Like, he's running, his family is running away from rulers who will hurt him. And he's the king of the world. And he's showing this humanity, this humility, and this hiddenness that are, that are very striking if you look at this in the sense that this is God. And yet, we're watching at the same time something very great. That this child becomes strong, he grows. Now listen, when you look at verse 40, what I want you to notice is that this isn't just saying, oh yeah, by the way, just like everybody else, he grew. And just like everybody else, he grew in wisdom. And just like everybody else, the favor of God was upon him. It should be taken in a way that emphasizes that Jesus' growth and wisdom was beyond what it should have been for anyone who had sinned. He was different. And so we see this stark contrast. He's humble, he's hidden, he's human, yet his growth is unprecedented. The grace of God is upon him. When you see that the favor of God, verse 40, is upon him, literally God's grace is upon him, not God's unmerited favor because Jesus had merited favor, but God's disposition towards Jesus was favor and grace and love and enjoyment of his son. And also we see his glory because he's special in the eyes of God. So with all of this, we see this stark contrast, and listen, all that it does is emphasized to us Jesus' humanity. Jesus really did become human to die on your behalf. He really did. Even though he existed before time and even though all things belonged to him, he came to truly be human. We see this humble preparation of the God-man Jesus in preparation for his ultimate task to die for your sins. Listen, we see in Hebrews 5, 7-9, through 9, look at this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all those who obey him. What we see is this humanity, this suffering, this humility that Jesus took on for us. And I think that this is relevant for us, because I think you and I face the same contrast. I think this picture enlightens what we are called to be as Christians. Listen, as God prepares us for his mission, for our lives, and as God prepares us just to be glorified one day and being with him forever, which he is preparing you constantly, making you more like his son, we see a stark contrast for us as Christians. That we are in God's favor. We will be glorified one day. God's grace is upon us. And God is growing us through his word consistently. And yet he calls us to be humble. Christians are hidden. And our human frailty is ever before us so much so that we have to only depend on God. And I wonder if this is how you live your life with both sides in hand that I'm a child of God and yet I'm going to serve my brother and serve the world. And it's okay if I don't get recognition or fame. And I'm going to be maybe hidden in this life but God's favor is upon me. I wonder if you pursue humility with the joy of knowing that your father is with you. And I wonder if you follow Jesus' example in pursuing this growth, this humility, and not lording it over others. And so we see this in a couple of pictures. 1 Corinthians 18, 1, 18 through 31. Look at this contrast. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us, see this humility, this hiddenness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Like you might be listening and saying, man, I can't believe he's yelling this stuff. This is all fictitious. It's folly to those who don't believe. And yet at the same time, for us, it's glory. For the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, if there was any, is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world in things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so what we see is this stark contrast for us as Christians. The same is true for us. Look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. I'm just going to show you these. So I exhort the elders among you. It's written to, written to a specific people, but it's applicable for us as it goes. As a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd is, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We're going to receive this unfading crown of glory. Yet likewise you who are younger be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. Wait. We're going to receive this crown of glory and yet we're supposed to be clothed in humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Being sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christians, listen to me. You are called to this same contrast. You are ones who will be in the presence of God for all of eternity and his favor is upon you. But you are called now to seek humility and in your weakness that you would serve, that you'd be faithful in your hiddenness and that you would be dependent upon God in your humanity that you wouldn't boast in anything but the Lord, that his grace and favor are upon you, and his glory will be revealed to you for all of eternity. But we serve as submissive, humble, hidden people in this life. The first contrast we saw was the humble, hidden humanity of Jesus, and yet the unprecedented growth, the grace of God upon him and his glory. The second thing that we see in our passage is the contrast of the Son of God, him being the Son of God, and yet fully submissive. We see this contrast of the Son of God, and yet fully submissive. Stay with me in, my pa- in, the, in the passage. Not my passage, it's his passage. But let's talk about it. Ready? So this is his only picture of boyhood. Smack dab in the middle of those verses that are the same, 40 and 52, we see his boyhood. Now what's happening? Look at this. Ready? This passage is between ages 2 and 12, okay? 2 and 12. If you jump down to verse 15, right? I'm sorry, 52. If you jump down to verse 52, that's 18 years right there in 52, okay? Literally, Eighteen years are are in, are packed in verse fifty-two, from age twelve to age. Anybody know? 18. At eighteen. 30, right? Because next chapter, chapter three, starting in verse one, Jesus comes onto the scene to start the ministry. John the Baptist, Jesus started his ministry when he was 30. So in verse 52, there's 18 years. From what we're seeing in this smack dab in the middle, we're seeing ages two to age 12, okay? So that's what's happening in this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem from where? See if you're awake. Nazareth, right? Okay, good. Wake up. Come on. Here we go. And they went every year to Jerusalem to the feast of the Passover. Now listen, what would happen is those who were within about 15 miles would go up every year. Those who were beyond that were probably charged to go up at least once in their lifetime. Yet, this is telling us, even though they lived 70 miles beyond, right, in Nazareth from Jerusalem, that they went up every year, probably because they knew whose child Jesus was which is God's child they knew what their child was like and so they went up and they went up every year to this right and what would happen is the men were required but the women weren't really and yet it says that they all went up or they both went up Mary and Joseph and so they're fulfilling the law which again shows us this humble preparation of the Savior because anything that Mary and Joseph did counted for Jesus Okay, accounting for him because he was a baby or he was a child. So look, they go up for the Passover. The Passover, which you can read it about in Exodus chapter 12 or Deuteronomy chapter 16, is what we see them going to celebrate, which is when God passed over his children, the people of Israel, um, when they had the blood uh, spread on the door, right? Even though he killed those who were in Egypt. So they're going up there, and look at this. When they go up there according to the custom which is when he was 12 years old, verse 42. And by the way, at verse, at age 12, let me tell you that at age 12, he becomes a man, okay? So like he's on his own in the sense of like he's responsible for everything that is required of him in the circumcision um, that took place. Like he is now a a son of the commandment, or son of commandments. That's what they called him. And so now he's a boy, he's of the age, they've gone up every year like they were required to, and now Jesus is in a different realm. He's a boy now. He's separate. He's responsible for his own following of God. And they go up according to everything that was custom. Now listen, this is the most important feast in verse 43. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, which you see boy, again, let me show you. Look at verse 40. What was he called? Child. Go back to verse 16 in the same chapter. What is he called? Go flip back to verse 16. Baby, so we see baby, then child, then now what? Boy, so he's a different camp, he's 12. He's responsible, he's going now into this place, right? We see this contrast. And the reason why this is letting us into some insight is to show how this confusion of them losing their son took place, okay? How did this take place? Well listen, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and watch what happens. His parents did not what? They didn't know it. So, like, you feel like a bad, cho- a bad parent sometimes? Okay, listen, their son is Jesus, the son of God, and they misplaced him, okay? <laughs> it should make you feel better. No, this is not meant to emphasize um, their losing of him, but here's what happened. So he's 12 years old now. When you're traveling back and forth on this journey, um, the, the women and the, the children would go on up ahead, okay? And the men and the, the boys who were of age would follow behind. And so they're in this unique position. They would go with a caravan of people, not like a literal caravan, those weren't invented yet, but they would travel together, okay? And they would go with this caravan of people, probably to protect against bandits to um, provide resources for one another. They're in this caravan of people. Jesus is right on the verge. He's been going probably up with them every year, always traveling with the women, with Mary, ahead of everybody, and now he's 12 and he's supposed to be back with the Father. There's some kind of confusion here about where Jesus is, and they go, it says, a day until they realize this. Okay, again, like, you want to feel bad uh, or feel good about being a parent, they go a day, right? I remember when we first had Xander, our third child, like I'm just so used to having two kids, right? We came into church to drop him off for Tuesday night treasure hunt, and I start walking in, and Casey's like, hey, we forgot our other child, okay? He's still in the car, okay? I had to go back and get him. And so here's what we're seeing. This account, they're leaving, they're understanding that this boy is not with them like they thought he was. He stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know it, and this was after a day. But suppose, verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey without even realizing. But then they began to search for him among the relatives. Remember the caravan and acquaintances and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem. So after about a day, they realized, and then they returned to Jerusalem to find him. Now, Jerusalem's small, and so when it says they found him in the temple after verse 30, 46, three days, it was probably one day they realized they're not finding him, and from the point that they realized they didn't have him, to the point when they found him was about three days, because the journey, and then Jerusalem is pretty small, okay, a pretty small place, and uh, verse 46 says that it took three days, which I love because brings to light, I mean, man, like if I'm a parent, when I realize I've lost my son, I'm thinking maybe he's dead, and yet after three days, I realize no, he's alive, right, and so what we see is they find him in the temple after three days, And they're sitting, he's sitting among the teachers. Now stay with me. He's doing some things among the teachers which emphasizes our point. Look at this. There's three big things he's doing. He's sitting. He's listening. And he's asking. Jesus, the Son of God, is sitting, and he's listening, and he's asking. It says in verse 46, he's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them, and he's asking them questions. These are the same people who would be asking him questions for the rest of his manhood, the Pharisees, the teachers. Answer us this, right? But these here are wise teachers and he's sitting and he's listening and he's asking. We see this stark contrast here of him being submissive to the elders. And all who heard him, which is crazy because now we see another stark contrast, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Wait a second. They're amazed at his understanding. They're amazed at his answers. They're amazed at his wisdom. And yet Jesus is sitting and he's listening, and he's asking. And this shows light, sheds light, into the fact that they, didn't, they weren't just amazed that, man, this kid's pretty smart. They understand something supernatural is happening because there's other places in which we see that people were amazed. Look at this, Luke 8, 56. It says this, Now, and... Her parents were amazed because Jesus raised someone back to life, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. They're not just amazed like, wow, this is cool. They're amazed like... Man, this is something supernatural that's occurring. Look at this in Acts 9 21, right? And all who heard him were amazed. Is not this, this is Peter, after uh, after the Holy Spirit was upon him, is not this the man who, I'm sorry, this is Paul who after his conversion, they were amazed at Paul's conversion, seeing that something supernatural had happened to him. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, and he has, has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest. So people are seeing Paul after his conversion and are amazed something supernatural is happening. Next, Peter, look at this in Acts ten forty five. And all the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So listen, when they're amazed here at Jesus' answers, it's not just that they think he's smart. It's that they're saying there's something supernatural about this man. He's the son of God. Maybe they didn't realize it fully. And yet at the same time, listen, he's standing or he's sitting and he's listening and he's asking. Now there's more. I want you to see the rest of this contrast. Follow with me. And all who heard him were amazed at, the understanding, at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? And behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in this whole gospel. This is the first time you hear him speak. This is the first red letters. Verse 49. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house. And so the answer is silly because, to me, because I think about this, and this shows him to be, once again, truly the Son of God. Like if you were to come up to my children in a random time and say to them, where have you been? Like, night and day, I've been looking for you. Preston wouldn't understand you, right? Natalia would at this point. And Natalia, where have you been? I've been looking for you. Like, I've been searching everywhere for you. She would say, well, did you come to my house? Like, where I live? Why would you be looking for me? Don't you know I'm in my father's house? Like, I'm submissive. I'm in a family. I'm in relation. I'm not my own. I belong to someone else. Jesus here declaring himself to be the Son of God, and in this words, in this place, he's describing in the first words of his words within this gospel, his unique relationship to the Father, which is, he's the Son of God. This is his first words. This is his first declaration within this gospel. And we see this submission, and now follow along even further just a little bit. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and we see one more picture of submission, that he was submissive to them. Which, by the way, them here, this phrase, them is the last time we hear of Joseph being referred to in the whole gospel. Um, Yeah, in this whole gospel. So we think at this point, Joseph is probably, somewhere between 12 and 30, Joseph has, has died, probably. And so what we see here, is this submission to his father and to his mother, and Mary treasuring up all of these things in her heart, which cross-reference with me. Go back to verse 19 of chapter um, two. Go back to verse 19 of chapter 2. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 66, and it says the same thing of the people um, who were there, all who heard them laid up these things in their hearts. And so Mary's watching all this, and she's probably starting to understand what's happening. But within this point, here's what we see. We see this contrast of this Son of God and yet this submissive human. He's the son of God who is full of wisdom. People are amazed at his understanding. He's he's full of of light and understanding. And he's the son of God. Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And yet at the same time, he's submissive. And he's saying, I'm going to go back and obey my father and mother. And he's sitting and he's listening and he's asking within the temple. Now, for the sake of time... I want to show you this picture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in a human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see this stark contrast, the Son of God and yet this submissive uh, man. And for the sake of time, let me tell you, once again we see the same stark contrast being called of us as Christians. We are the sons of God, the daughters of God, And yet we're called to be submissive to him, to each other, towards our leadership. We're called to be submissive people to his word and while at the same time glory that we're the children of God. The last one, number three, and we're already over, so I'm gonna go through this really quick. And it's only one verse, verse 52. We see the stark contrast of him, what I'm calling reigning eternally. And yet, the way in which Jesus chose to be revealed. Now, I see this stark contrast because, listen, there's one difference between verse 40 and verse 52. If we had time, I would ask you to look for it and see if you could tell what the difference is. The difference is there's one addition at the end, that he didn't only grow in favor with God, but that he grew in favor with what? Man. That's the one difference. So why is that difference there? Well, we see that people are starting to understand who Jesus is. They're starting to see this man is special because of his obedience, because of his humanity, his perfect humanity, and because of his godlike natures, uh, nature right? And yet at the same time, listen, God is progressively, Jesus is progressively revealing himself to man in this way as a human. They're watching him be special because he's progressively showing him, showing them this by his obedience, by by his submission, and by his keeping of the law, they see this man is special. And yet Jesus has always reigned, He's always existed. He's eternal. He could have at any moment cracked the sky and revealed to everybody at one time, this is who I am, people. Right? And yet he chooses to do this, and it emphasizes once again his humanity, his humility, his hiddenness, his submission. And so for time's sake, let me tell you once again, this shows us this contrast. As we close church, this is what we're called to be, We're called to strike this same balance. Rejoice in the fact that you're children of God. Rejoice in the fact that you've been called by his name, that you will one day be with him for all of eternity. And yet at the same time, Christian, pursue humility. Pursue submission. Be okay being faithful in your hiddenness because you have a glory that's to come. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I just pray that you would take this, and that you would use it in our lives. Help us to be people who are not seeking uh, pride because of our right standing before you, as though we could boast in anything of ourselves. Help us to boast in you and you alone, and to pursue humility on the contrary. Following Jesus's example that we see in Philippians chapter 2, That we would be people who don't only look out for our own interests, but also the interests of others, pursuing Christ's likeness in our servanthood, in our humility, in our hiddenness, in our submissiveness, in our understanding that we are frail and dependent upon you. And yet, God, help us to be people who rejoice that your favor is upon us, your grace is upon us, and that we would live glorying in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you to joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.